Welcome to the August 29th sermon from Clifford Baptist Church, 635 Fletcher's Level Road in Amherst. Today's scripture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and the sermon is entitled The Rapture, delivered today by Associate Pastor Clyde Moyer. With all the things that are happening in the world today, and just in the last week or so, we've got a hurricane Ida just about ready to lambast New Orleans and the Gulf Coast and maybe come up this far. The trouble in Afghanistan, uh, many, many people uh, left behind that need to be gotten out. Um, The resurgence of the pandemic, which has gotten to the point now that I almost wonder if you could classify it as a biblical plague. I don't know that that's the case, but it certainly crosses my mind. Uh, I can't think of a better time to talk about the rapture than right now. Uh, My favorite quote on the rapture comes from a good friend of mine, uh, Bill Cope. Uh, Bill said, I'm not looking for the undertaker, I'm looking for the upper taker. Uh, He's ready, he's looking for the rapture to show up, and that is the attitude we should have. Billy Graham once said, world events are moving very rapidly now. I pick up the Bible in one hand, and I pick up the newspaper in the other, and I read almost the same words in the newspaper as I read in the Bible. It's being fulfilled every day around us. In recent months, it appears more and more like Billy's statement was prophetic. And apparently, a lot of other people feel the same way because just about everywhere I go, I hear people talking about all the things that have happened and wondering if we're in the end times. Because of that renewed interest in where we are on God's timeline, the subject of the rapture comes up very frequently. And of course, Satan is never pleased when people think in line with God's word. D.L. Moody said, the devil does not want us to see this truth concerning the return of the Lord, for nothing would wake up the church so much. The moment a person takes hold of the truth that Jesus Christ is coming back to receive his friends to himself, this world loses its hold upon him. And I would agree with that. The rapture is nearer now than it was when you got here this morning. I wonder how many of us are ready for it. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18. I'm going to read through those verses, then we're going to go back and unpack them one at a time. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 
and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Before I go any further in the explanation of these verses, I think it might behoove us to make sure we understand two or three definitions. What's the tribulation? The tribulation is the seven-year period where the Antichrist is ruling. And that seven-year period is broken into two three-and-a-half-year periods. The first three-and-a-half-year period, the Antichrist will come to full power, and it will seem as if everything is going well as far as peace in the world. He will seem to have an answer for everything. He will be the man of the hour to the lost people. Uh, the second three-and-a-half-year period, the Antichrist is going to show his true colors and set himself up in the temple of God and demand to be worshipped as God. This half of the tribulation will literally be hell on earth for the people who are, have gotten saved during the tribulation, the tribulation saints. Another definition, the day of the Lord. This is referring to the second coming of Christ, the great judgment that is coming. And then finally, the rapture. The rapture is a point in time where Christ will catch all Christians up into the air and take them to heaven to be with him. I believe this happens immediately before the seven-year tribulation begins. I'm a pre-tribulation believer. The point being that God calls us out before the suffering begins. He calls his church, his people out. I want to delineate a little difference here, too. The rapture is not the second coming of Christ. During the rapture, Christ comes and appears in the air above the earth. But at the second coming, he will come all the way to the earth on the Mount of Olives and set up the millennial kingdom. To keep in context what Paul is saying in verse 13, where we've just started to study, we need to realize that these Thessalonians have only been Christians for a few months. They're baby Christians. They live in a terrible time of persecution. They're under Roman rule. They are dealing with many, many things that we, in this country at least, don't have to deal with, although our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan are facing death many times every day of the week right now, and we just have to pray for their, for their safety. Uh, but Paul had already taught these people about the rapture. He had taught them the, do the doctrine of the rapture, that, that Jesus was going to come back and get them and take them to be in heaven with him. He'd also taught them about the day of the Lord when the wrath of God would finally be poured out on this sinful world. But again, remember, these are very young Christians. They don't have years and years of walking with Christ. They don't have the whole Bible like we've got. They don't have references that they can go to. Apparently, these young believers had gotten very confused. The persecution they were currently under was bad enough that they thought maybe they were already in the day of the Lord, where God's judgment was being poured out. And that, if that were true, they were very concerned that possibly they had missed the rapture. To compound the confusion, there were false teachers in that day that were misleading people about the times they were in. And that fed the believers' anxiety, and they were anxious, and they were uncertain, and their peace was not as it should have been because of this stirring of the pot the false teachers were doing. Apparently, one of, if not the main concern that these new Christians had 
was, okay, well, what has happened to my friends and family that have already passed away? They're not here to go up in the rapture. How does this work out? Would they get a resurrection body, or would they end up waiting until after the tribulation? Having missed the rapture, would they be second-class citizens in heaven? I, I understand this concern very much. I would be very concerned about the people that have gone on before me. I am now about the ones that I love and know that have gone that I'm not sure where they went. I'm concerned about the ones that I love and know now still on this side that I don't know exactly where they're going to go. This kind of concern is very common. Paul takes the very first verse we're studying, verse 13, to, to be very quick to reassure and comfort these new believers. He says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. Now the word used here for sleep is interesting. It's koimeo, and it refers to the believers that have died. This is an important point here that I'm going to share with you. This refers only to the sleep of the Christian's body. Their soul is not in the grave with their fallen body. Their soul is in heaven in the presence of the Lord. Paul loved these people very much. He was very concerned to be able to comfort them in their grieving and to share with them the joy of the truth of Scripture here. All of us grieve when we lose someone. But for the Christian, it is not a loss. It is a temporary separation. Now that does not remove the sting of death when we lose someone we love. I realize that. But to temper the sting of death, the certainty that I'm going to see him again in a perfect place and will never be parted again, is a wonderful and comforting hope. We have hope, and the world does not have it. Let's look at verse 14. It says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now we're going to break this into two halves for a reason. The first point that is given there is for if we believe that Jesus died. There is no doubt in any of these Christians' minds that Jesus was who he said he was and that he did, in fact, literally die. Scripture doesn't use the word koimeo here for Jesus' death. It uses the literal word for death. Realize that when Jesus died on the cross, every sin that had ever been committed, every sin that was being committed, and every sin that ever would be committed was placed on him, as if, he, as if he were literally guilty of that. And in fact, for the first and only time in history, when God the Son called out to God the Father, he couldn't find him. I cannot conceive of that. But he, and you say, well, how do I know that? I know it because Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is not the word of somebody that is comforted with the presence of his Father. He, for the first and only time in existence. So Jesus, bearing all those sins, had to literally die to be a true sacrifice. The second half of the verse says, and rose again. Even so them also who sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can have the confidence that he can do that for us as well. 
John MacArthur is one of the pastors that I refer to his, his studies and his notes very often. I'm sure he's not perfect, like no one is perfect, but he tries very, very hard, it seems to me, to study the scriptures and to dig into the scriptures and to get it right because of how important it is to get it right. John MacArthur says that these are the two pillars that the rapture, the doctrine of the rapture rests on. Jesus died and Jesus rose. Verse 15 says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent those who are asleep. Paul is assuring the believers that Jesus, Jesus has not forgotten where he's put them. The people who have already passed away while their bodies have been lying in an earthly grave, their souls have been with Jesus. He will raise the dead in Christ first, first, and reunite their souls and their bodies into the glorified eternal body that we will all have in heaven. This not only comforted the Thessalonians about their loved ones' whereabouts, but it denounced the false doctrines of the false teachers of the day that claimed that the body and soul were stuck in some kind of afterlife limbo and just floating in nothingness and there wasn't anything that could be done for them. That was absolutely false. Verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Jesus is explaining what this is going to look like. Or Paul is explaining what this is going to look like. Jesus himself will descend from heaven and appear in the air above the earth, both the living dead and the dead that, have been, that were saved that have already passed away will hear a mighty voice and the sound of a trumpet and the dead in Christ will come up first. The graves will open. Now, there, I have heard many theological discussions at Liberty as to do the graves pop open themselves and people go up or do the people just translate up and go into heaven. My personal belief is they're going to pop open because it says that people are going to be astonished at the fact uh, I would be astonished if I ever visit a graveyard and people start popping out of the ground. I'm going to go somewhere else, I can tell you that. But they're going to be astonished because they're not going to be prepared for what is happening. Verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You will not find the word rapture in your Bible. I want to tell you that up front. Some things do not translate perfectly into English, and that is one of them. The literal word in the Bible used is harpazo, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O, and it means to snatch or seize suddenly. The English word rapture was basically created to represent as closely as possible the true meaning of what the Greek, meant, Greek was saying. So literally, the rapture is the caught up, or the snatched out. Uh, rapture is easier to make sense of, I think. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 describes how this will happen. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. 
in the twinkling of an eye, uh, that is very, very quickly. That's basically meaning how quick it takes you to, to bat your eye one time. It is a, a measure of time that's almost too short to measure. I'm sure and feel certain that the Thessalonians' baby Christians were relieved on the one hand and deeply amazed on the other at what God was going to do. Well, what about us? Are you and I relieved with the details of the rapture? Years ago, I remember a Christian comedian saying that he felt almost like he should go out in his front yard every day and jump up and down as high as he could just for rapture practice. And we laugh at that silly mental picture, and it is silly, but you have to admire the fact that the guy was truly looking for, and as Pastor Jeffrey says, expecting the rapture to happen at any moment. How might the rapture appear to the lost world when it happens? This is an interesting question. It is my understanding that most theologians believe that the world at large won't hear the voice or the trumpet. Only Christians will hear the call. So as far as the, if that's correct, as far as the unsaved population of the world goes, people will suddenly and silently vanish. Graves will immediately be opened, but they won't see anything. Can you imagine? You're on a business trip. You're flying in an airplane at 30,000 feet, and you are unlucky enough to have a saved pilot. People that don't pray will immediately be praying for an unsaved co-pilot. Trains, planes, and automobiles will be crashing all around the planet if a Christian is operating them. Piles of clothes right on the sidewalk in front of you. And I have to admit, this one tickles me. I cannot think about it without laughing. You know, the, the grave clothes that Jesus was in in the tomb it said, basically, it looks like he just dematerialized and stood right up through it and then rematerialized outside the clothes. The clothes were lying there intact. Piles of clothes everywhere that are still connected, socks are in shoes, the socks are in the bottom of the pants, the belt he still has a, a shirt tucked into it, just lying there. I tell you, I read a story, true story about a professor who had a student that kept going to sleep in his class. And he decided that he, I mean, the guy slept soundly. And he decided that he was going to take care of that once and for all. So he got all of the rest of the class in on this. And they waited until the young man was sound asleep. And he had them all stand up and exit quietly. And then he gave a great shout. And the little boy jumped up and he thought the rapture had come and he'd been left. <laughs> He didn't sleep anymore in that class. Here's a thought. Those of us who have had knees and hips replaced are going to leave those parts on the ground. I don't care how you say that. That's just funny. Replacement body parts in a pile in the clothes. When God calls you up, you're going to have a glorified body. I don't care if you were burned up in a building, you were on a ship that exploded in World War II or Vietnam. Every single atom that belongs to your body, bodily creation will be recalled 
and put back together for your glorified body. That is going to be so cool. God's going to rematerialize all of those atoms and rejoin them with your soul that has been with him. And you're going to walk out of that resurrection body. I'm going to have a full head of hair. And six more teeth than I've got right now. Don't you wonder what the unsaved media is going to do with this? It's going to be hilarious. Right there in the studio, some Christian camera operator is just going to disappear, leaving a pile of clothes. Even then, my guess is the lost world's blindness is going to cause people to come up with some off-the-wall idea as to what happened. We spontaneously combusted because an alien came or something. It's going to be funny to try to hear what they come up with. And we'll get to hear it from the other side, guys. Let's quickly recap the order of events in the rapture before we move any further. First, the Lord will come, come for his bride, the church. He won't send angels, angels and messengers. This is so important, and Jesus loves us so much that he is going to personally come to collect us and escort us back to heaven. Jesus will descend from heaven where he has been ever since his ascension. That's where he has been ever since he went up in the New Testament, right at the end where they watched him go up. He will give a great shout. In my mind, it has to be something similar to Lazarus come forth. And I know you've heard the preaching on this, and I believe it's true. Why did Jesus say Lazarus come forth? Because if he just said come forth, every grave would have emptied. This is God, not just a man. The voice of an archangel will sound. Now, we don't know which archangel's voice. In fact, there is great discussion as to how many archangels are there. In Jewish tradition, there are seven. But I really could not answer that. But one of the archangels has been tasked to call out for us. There will be the sound of a trumpet of God to assemble God's people and announce their deliverance. Well, that's going to be a welcome sound to not have any more problems after that. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. Saints that have already passed away are in no way inferior to people that are fortunate enough to be alive when Jesus calls us home. They will have the honor of rising first. And finally, we, we who are alive will also be caught up together into the heavens to meet the Lord. Now we come to some rather obvious questions. What has to happen before the rapture can come? What are we waiting on to come to pass? Well, some of the things that had to happen was Jesus had to be born, die, and resurrect. The destruction of the temple had to happen. That happened in 70 AD. The Jewish dispersion, as predicted in Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, had to come to pass. The Jews are still, still dispersed throughout the world. The church age, as predicted in Matthew and Ephesians, had to happen. You're living in the church age. The church age began at the day of Pentecost and will stop the day the rapture takes us up. That we're in the age of grace or the church age. Those are interchangeable uh, names. The rebirth of Israel, which seemed impossible to everyone. And yet in 1948, Israel reconstituted itself as a nation. I'm not sure if reconstituted is the right word. When I say that, I think I just add water and you've got tang. But anyway, the, the country came back into being. How about the Jewish control of Jerusalem? Well, that happened too. In the Six-Day War in 1967, 
the Israelis took Jerusalem back and they've had it ever since. And by the way, they'll never lose it again. No nation will ever defeat Israel again. So what's left to happen before the rapture? Easy question, easy answer. Nothing. When will it happen? In 1988, a gentleman named Edgar Wisdom published a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. But it didn't happen, so in 89, he wrote a second book entitled 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1989. And that fell flat as well. I always thought he should have written a third book in 1990, 90 Reasons Why It Didn't Come. There have been 15 more major failed attempts to pick the date exactly since 1988 some of which I'm sure are people you are very well familiar with their names and I imagine they're a little embarrassed at their predictions. What some of them did was try to cover their bases by saying in the next 10 years this will happen. And now it's gone by and that's not working either. In Matthew 24, 36, Jesus plainly states, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father, only. How is it possible to misunderstand that statement? If God hasn't told Jesus yet, he hasn't told any of us. Only the Father. Only means only. There's only one person named after only. No one still knows. If that is interpreted correctly as I have interpreted it, Jesus doesn't know yet and won't until God says, go get him, son. Nobody can predict it. Now, this brings the obvious question, what good does it do me to know what's going to happen if I don't know when it's going to happen? Why is the Bible so specific about end times activities but so vague on the timing? The entire point is simple. Be ready. If you don't know when it's coming, you've got to be ready now in order to be ready when it comes. If you put it off, you may find yourself like the, like the, peop- the virgins that didn't have their lamps trimmed and had the door shut to the wedding party before they could get into it. We are to remind each other that we don't have to be afraid of the times we're in. God is still in control. Verse, the very last verse we studied, verse 18, told us what we should do about it. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Brothers and sisters, I'd suggest the following. If, I, if we knew the rapture was going to be next Wednesday for certain sure, and we would have to change how we live in order to be ready for it, I suggest you're living wrong now. We should be ready now. God simply told us ahead of time so that we wouldn't worry when it happened. It's all part of his plans. The two points that come out of knowing the rapture is coming is very simple. It's not to cloister and hide. It's not to collect a bunch of people and get on top of a hill and wait. There's two primary things to do only. Don't worry about it because God said it was going to happen. And now that he's told us, we know it's going to happen. He's got this so we can trust him to take care of it. Let the world go to hell in a handbasket. God knows that. He also knows where we are. He can take care of us. And the second is as important than the first. Get to work. Go get somebody to take with you. False predictions about the rapture over time have caused some people, this is literally true, to sell everything they have and go sit on a mountaintop and wait, only to be sorely disappointed. That's not what Scripture says we're to do. My brother Derek Kaiser and I were talking Friday, and he said a pastor that he was listening to recently said, we should keep our eyes on the heavens and our hands on the plow. That is good stuff. 
Be ready, but keep working. To that I say, amen. If anything, believing the rapture is at hand should make us work harder and harder to get more and more people saved before Jesus comes so they don't have to try to get saved during the tribulation. I'm not sure about this teaching, but most of the evangelists and people that I've heard teach on this say that the people that had the opportunity to get saved prior to the rapture will probably not get saved during the tribulation. Only people in the tribulation that had not, never heard will be able to become a tribulation saint. I don't know if that's true or not, but it behooves us to be with the bunch that goes up before the problem starts. Get your act together. Get saved. Let's keep the proper perspective of being ready and working hard. Comfort one another with these words. But before I draw the sermon to a close, and I'm about to, I'd like to talk to anyone in the room who very possibly is not comforted by these words. In a crowd of people this size, there are almost certainly some people that are a bit disturbed by the thought that Jesus might show up before lunch today. If there's any concern, I'd suggest a question. Is it possible that some of us aren't completely settled in our heart about our relationship to Jesus? Do we actually know him or simply know about him? At the close of all sermons, most pastors, evangelical pastors anyway, will offer an invitation saying something along the lines of perhaps you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. We invite you to come forward and get that right with him. The problem is, and this is true even though it's sad, churches are full of people who can name a time and date or even multiple times that they walked down an aisle somewhere and prayed a prayer, shook a hand, maybe even joined the church. But if their family and friends that know them intimately were honest, they might admit they see very little difference. I have one friend, this is true, he's a member of this church who says that he can remember about six different times in his life where he felt convicted and he prayed the prayer of salvation with people. But it was the seventh that did the trick. And I asked him, what was the difference? He said, well, I honestly came repenting. Mental agreement with facts about Jesus won't save you any more than being able to recite a pilot's manual makes you a pilot. To become a pilot, you'll actually have to put the facts in the manual to work in your life and trust the plane to the extent that if it doesn't work, you're going to crash and die. For your mentally agreed upon facts about Jesus to actually save you, you must trust Jesus to guide and run your life to the extent that if he fails, you crash and die eternally. Does it actually say that in the Bible? You know what? It really does. Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, when you see verily, verily, this means it's of utmost importance. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Maybe you do remember walking the aisle, but I'm not asking you if you walked an aisle. I'm asking when you did, were you born again? I've actually gotten to the point when someone at the pulpit like I'm standing now is just preaches out boldly, salvation is free, that I actually cringe. Because technically speaking, salvation is free because Jesus paid a price for something I could never pay for. But a genuine salvation, while the payment for it was free for you, it will cost you the rest of your life, the rest of your eternity. 
When a true person, a person is truly saved, they become what is called a bond slave of Christ. Now, a bond slave was a person who was a slave that belonged to a master, and his time of slavery had ended, and the, the master said, you can go out now, I'm letting you loose, you can go wherever you want to, you are completely free to leave. And the servant said, Lord, I love you, I don't want to leave you, I want to be your servant for the rest of my life. He would take, the master would take that bond slave to the doorpost and run an awl through his earlobe into the doorpost. And from that point on, that slave was a permanent slave to his master by his own choice. Truly getting saved means you are choosing to permanently become a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Churches that preach it so easy that nothing really costs, nothing really has to change, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called that cheap grace. It's a false teaching. I have no idea where any of you stand with the Lord. You know, it's, it's difficult to see from the outside a lot of times. A moral lost person can look remarkably like a backslidden Christian. But it doesn't matter one whit if I know or not. What matters is do you know where you stand with the Lord? If anyone here is privately wondering if they're truly born again, I'd suggest instead of counting on the fact that you walked an aisle somewhere, you ask yourself a simple question. Are you living for the Lord or are you living for yourself? That's going to tell you a whole lot. If you have any question at all, I would ask please don't take a chance with your eternity. Get it right as soon as possible. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for the privilege of being able to stand here. Remove me from the sermon. Remove anything that I said wrong or not well, Father. And let only what the Holy Spirit is doing speak to people. Move in power in the hearts of everyone here, everyone that may be listening by live stream, Lord, and have your will done in whatever their heart needs to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Clifford Baptist Church invites you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. For more information about our church, please call our church office at 434-946-0555.